0: This is Understanding Micah, part of our Understanding the Old Testament series, Making the Old Testament Accessible to You. Now in the last episode, we gave a brief introduction to Micah. Micah's a prophet, and he's condemning Jerusalem, which is the capital of southern Judah, remember Israel is split into two kingdoms after Solomon's reign, and he's judging southern Judah for their idolatry. That's what he's preaching against. Now. Micah describes in terrifying detail God emerging from his temple to judge his people. That's chapter 1. And God promises or rather, you know, foretells that there's going to be a conqueror that's going to be his instrument of judgment. And we have a historical referent for that. That's the nation of Assyria led by the ruthless king Sennacherib. And in Micah 2, we're going to get a closer look at Jerusalem's situation. So Micah is going to get specific about what Jerusalem has done to incur this judgment uh, from God. And really, the, the sin of Jerusalem can be thought of in two categories, but they're related to one another. One is turning to false gods, which is idolatry. But the second is injustice, a failure to love one's neighbor. And that's happening on a societal level in the city of Jerusalem and Judah as a kingdom. Now, as I read Micah chapter 2, pay attention to the specific charges God brings against his people. This is Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds! When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and in his inheritance, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. And in that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me, to an apostate he allows our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast a line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly, with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head." So chapter 2 begins with Micah pronouncing a woe or a judgment or curse against the powerful. These are rich land barons who work evil on their beds. In other words, this is premeditated stuff. They're plotting on how to disenfranchise the people who are poorer than them. And they've used their social and economic power to seize fields and houses away from those of lesser means. And this is a great offense to God, right? They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. That's a key word, inheritance. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. And that's a reference to God's promise to the Israelites that all those families are going to have an inheritance in the land. The land is a gift of God's grace to all of his people. They have a claim to it by divine grace. So, God sees that as injustice. You are taking away what I have given to them, their inheritance. So, he hears the cries of these people who are being unfairly treated and suffering that injustice, and he ends up returning the favor on those who are corrupt. In other words, he says this, that just as you seize land from the poor, so will I seize your land from you and bring devastation upon your families. So there's a parallelism here. These rich land barons, they're devising wickedness. And then in verse 3, the Lord says, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster. So God is kind of like, I'll one-up you. If you think that you can take land away from them, I'm going to justly take land away from you because of what you've done. Now, economic concerns are really key in God's law. One of the ethics that you see in Exodus and Deuteronomy is that Israel is supposed to have a different kind of economy than Egypt or Assyria. The goal is not profit maximization. The goal is not turning people into means for an end, but communal flourishing. That's what the goal is. And you can see this in Deuteronomy 14 to 15, where there are laws about debts. Every seven years, the Israelites would release their debts So that people wouldn't fall into a a trap of constantly accumulating debt to other people. Uh, There's also every three years a provision. So your tithes are brought and every three years those tithes are used to uh, provide for sojourners, the fatherless, and widows. Again, Deuteronomy 14 to 15. Inheritance rights are fiercely protected. You can see that in Deuteronomy 21. And various regulations are enforced to protect poor workers. That's Deuteronomy 24. So the ways in which we treat one another regarding money and charity reflects what we believe about God, right? You think about what Jesus even says. The law is summed up in love God and love your neighbor. How can you love the God you don't see if if you hate the brother you can see? They're connected together, right? You can't hate the image of God in someone and say you love the one true God. So this is a serious issue. And God gives this land, again, and all its blessings as a gift of grace. So we can't look at anything that we've earned as if it's really something that we merited. Even the work that we do, it's all a blessing from God. And it's meant to be stewarded as a tool to bless other people. Now, Micah's message, surprisingly, is not well received in Judah, especially among the people that he's calling out for their sin. Go figure. That's kind of how it works. So the people, upon hearing him say, hey, this is evil what you're doing. People are devising wickedness. They're, they're taking and seizing land from people who own it and, or, or who have a right to it. And you're following after false gods. You're making idols, all these kinds of things. And the people hear that and they say, stop preaching. We don't want to hear it. And it's interesting how they respond. They're basically saying, "Don't preach." In verse six, why? Because you shouldn't preach of such things. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. There's this kind of smug self-assurance. We're going to be fine. We're the people of God. We're going to be. We have the temple. We give our tithes. We do all these religious things. We're going to be fine. And he's also saying, "Micah, do you think God's not going to be patient?" Isn't God good? Why are you talking about judgment? This is all kind of crazy. I think you're exaggerating all this stuff. But they fail to see that they have made themselves enemies to God by their injustice and idolatry. They fail to see that God is not happy with them. In other words, they're making a common mistake that can happen even among God's people or especially among God's people, which is presuming upon grace. And, you know, maybe growing up, You do something bad and you're like, man, am I going to be struck by lightning? And then nothing happens. And you're kind of like, huh, well, maybe God doesn't really care if I do this or that. And that attitude can be dangerous because we forget that God is sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over all things. And God notices this. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And so you can see the arrogance As if God can't see right into their sinful hearts and see the ways that they're trying to pull a fast one on God. But God sees what they've done. And you see the list of those sins again that Micah lays out. They've stripped robes from the innocent and cast out women and children. So they've perverted justice. The innocent are being stolen from. And the most vulnerable in society, the women and children, are being harmed. They're being taken advantage of. And Micah describes the society in Judah as being drunken on their own debauchery, and they're ripe for judgment. Not a pretty picture. Now, all hope is not lost, and this is really important to grasp because God promises for the latter half of Micah 2 to assemble Jacob, which is a reference to Israel. Remember, Jacob is basically the great-great-great-great-granddaddy Uh, of the Israelite people, and Jacob's name was actually changed to Israel, if you read that in Genesis. So, God is going to assemble Jacob once more and gather the remnant of Israel. Now, that word remnant is really important. If you have a remnant of something, that means that as long as that remains, Israel is going to have a future. So, God's not going to bring wholesale destruction because if he preserves a small number, as long as that's there, Israel will have a future. And this future is going to have God once again being their shepherd. God shepherds this remnant as his own flock. And one day he's going to break open the gates and bring them out of exile. Remember, exile is a word we saw introduced in chapter 1. Now, God promises, I will once again be your head. I will once again shepherd you and care for you as my flock. Now, this shepherd language is really important to understand why Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. It's a complete allusion back here. And Jesus, in the Gospel of John, speaks of being a good shepherd who ensures that there is going to be one flock and one shepherd. And he's hearkening back to the fact that in the future, God is saying that God is not only going to bring his people out of exile, but he's going to reunite them together underneath one shepherd. Now, God's purposes come to a climax in the good shepherd himself, Jesus Christ, who sent by the Father not only to call Israelites back to God, but all the nations of the world. To bring in those not even of his flock, as Jesus says, speaking of the Gentiles, speaking of most of us, to be grafted in to this new people of God, the church. And so Micah is getting a foretaste of God's future plans that underneath one shepherd, there will be one flock, and that one flock will be cared by him, saved by him, and loved by him, and that he will be their Lord. In the next episode, we're going to look at Micah chapter 3, where Micah takes to task the leaders of Jerusalem, the rulers, the priests, and the prophets who are in power and filled with corruption. And his criticism is pretty devastating. So don't miss the next episode of Understanding Micah.